This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 80, part A. Listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to the Negotiate X podcast. I'm your co-host, co-founder, Nolan Martin. And with me, as always, good friend, co-host, co-founder, Aaron Nijan. Aaron, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Nolan. It's good to see you as always. And let me uh, go ahead and get to introducing our guest today. Folks, today we're joined by Mike Inman. He is a distinguished negotiation trainer and managing partner at Table Force, known for his extensive global experience and expertise. He has trained over 7,000 negotiators across six continents, I'm going to guess that Antarctica is the one that might be missing. But I'm we'll, looking we'll, for that client. Yes, I, I, <laughs> I will negotiate a great deal if I can get seven. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and more than 30 countries. His experience encompasses a wide range of industries, including manufacturing, defense, airlines, technology, publishing, and gaming hospitality. Mike has personally led negotiations for over $1 billion in deals, making him adept at presenting real-world examples and in-depth analysis. His academic credentials are equally impressive, having studied at some of the world's leading institutions like MIT's Sloan School of Management, Harvard Business School, Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, and the University of Southern California. His educational background includes a focus on negotiations for executives, change management, finance, and lean operations, in addition to a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from USC, which is obviously the natural lead up to becoming a world-class right. Negotiator. <laughs> it's so Mike's obvious, right? <laughs> it's so obvious. Mike's professional journey includes significant roles at major corporations. He was the head of global procurement at MGM Resorts International, the senior vice president of procurement and production at IAC Interactive Core, and the director of purchasing at American Airlines. He also held positions in purchasing and supply chain management at General Motors. These roles have seen him responsible for over $2 billion in spend, negotiating a variety of complex strategic deals. And outside his professional life, I can't believe you have any time for anything else. <laughs> Mike enjoys spending time with his family, traveling internationally, engaging in critical thinking exercises, and playing beach volleyball. Maybe we can find out if you were in the top gun in the vol beach volleyball scene or that, not. Yeah. Uh, I was okay. not, but that was that was definitely influential. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, thanks for joining us today. I can tell well, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Mike, can you walk us through your journey from starting in aerospace engineering to becoming a negotiation expert? Yeah, yeah. I, um, this is a fun one. So I started with a degree in engineering and I couldn't find a job as an engineer. I, I spent a lot of time on the beach playing volleyball and not enough time studying. So I wasn't uh, at the top of my class engineering wise. And if I couldn't find a job as an engineer, my next favorite profession was to be in sales. My grandfather was in sales. He always had a nice new car, didn't work a lot of Fridays, played a lot of golf. You know, the life of the salespeople. <laughs> so um, I joined a company called Kenmar. Now, Kenmar is a manufacturer's rep agency. They're located in Detroit. And they represent manufacturers from around the world selling into Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors, some fairly large, sophisticated purchasing organizations. And I did that job for about three years. 
before I realized that I was average. And, and I didn't want to be average. Nobody does. So um, I decided, as an engineer, I needed to get some data. So I developed a survey. And I passed it out to all my peers in sales. And the results came back. And I was really disappointed. Because this survey that I'd spent so much time creating and passing out, there was only one common data point that I could find across all these world-class sellers. And the common data point was this. They had all been in purchasing roles before they went into sales. And that did not make sense to me. So I went to my boss and I said, um, hey, you know the survey? And he rolled his eyes. He said, oh, I've heard all about the survey. So <laughs> do you know that everybody here has been in purchasing before they went into sales? And he looked at me and he said, duh, I could have told you that before the survey. And I said, <laughs> I said no, not, not duh. Why, why is that so critical? And he said, Mike, it's because we understand the other side's sheet of paper. And I said, I have no idea what you mean. And he said, okay, let me, let me explain. We understand when we have a relationship with the end user community, when we're specced in, um, when we've got relationships, when we have the only capacity or intellectual property or, or one of very few companies that actually produce the part. And on those deals, we work to close them at high margin because that's what we're paid to do. And on the other side, we understand if we're the third or fourth or eighth bidder, we're just you know, being brought along to, to create fear, uncertainty, and doubt on the real preferred vendor. And on those deals, we're still polite. We're still professional. We're building a relationship for the future. But he said, Mike, I've noticed you, um, you come in early and you stay late. And this was my technology use at the time. I had the fax machine programmed to dial my beeper so that I could hurry up and quote. He said, Mike, you're working really hard, but you're not working really smart. Mm. And I said, yeah, you know what? It would be beneficial to know when I probably had the order and I could focus on those deals. And it would also be equal, equally good to know when I didn't have the order so that I could lose fast and not chase my tail spending a lot of time on it. Well, how do I know? And he said, well, you know, you're a smart guy. Eight or 10 years in sales, you'll probably figure it out. Or I know a hiring manager over at General Motors. They're hiring buyers right now. If you'd like, I could get your resume in the stack. And I said, well, if I was a buyer, how long would it take me to figure out? And he said, ah, a year or two tops, you definitely figured out. And this little voice in my head said, that sounds efficient. Eight or 10 <laughs> years in sales may be figured out. One or two years in purchasing definitely figured out. Would you please make the phone call for me? So here's the <laughs> vice president of sales, takes his young protege, and he gets me a job at General Motors. Yeah. And, and now most people think that helped him because he got more inside information. But we actually put up a firewall where we would never negotiate against each other because of the former relationship. He did it out of the kindness of his heart to help me. Because when I went in from sales, working really hard, but not working very smart, into purchasing, my life changed. And, and that's kind of what we'll talk about here. So my first, I'll say job experience negotiated General Motors, because I had been on the sales side, I understood the sales sheet of paper. So this is how it went. I would um, go to meetings, I'd collect specifications, I'd meet people, end user community, assemble it into a bid package, and then I'd send it out to all the suppliers. And then I'd go play Mahjong in solitaire. Those are the only games they let us have <laughs> at the time. Those were our apps. So, so I'd go to meetings and stuff. Don't hear something I'm not saying. But, but I'd kind of let the bids come in, let them stack up on my desk, playing Mahjong in solitaire. The due date would hit. I'm playing Mahjong in solitaire. Then after the due date, I'd get a phone call from a supplier and it would go like this in a high stressed voice. They'd say, uh, hey, Mike, we, um, we submitted our bid a few days ago and we were just wondering, uh, how do we look? Without even looking at the bid, 
I would just say, are you kidding me? You're way too high. Do better. <laughs> Back to Mahjong Salter. The next day, I'd get a phone call from that same supplier and they'd say, uh, hey, Mike, we, um, we sharpened the pencil. We, we talked to finance and you were right. Um, we can take an 8% discount. We, we'll give you an 8% discount if we can have the order. How do we look? And I'd say, again, without looking at their quote, 8%? You got to be double digits if you're serious about this order. Or I would call a meeting with supplier I had no intention of doing business with, someone that was weak and desperate, a new entrant into the market. And I would, I would abuse them in the negotiation. Then I'd call a meeting with supplier that I really wanted to do business with, with a preferred supplier. And I'd say, um, I've met with your competition. I've got all this stuff. And if you can't beat this, you're going to lose this order. And I was really good at it. <laughs> but here's the problem as a negotiator. That abusive type of negotiating is not sustainable. General Motors drove hundreds, if not thousands of suppliers out of business with those type of practices. And, and about six months after doing that, I, I woke up one day and I said, you know what? You're better than this. You just can't go beat people up for a living. So I just started to study negotiations, read books on negotiating, took classes on negotiating like the one I now teach. And from that point forward, my career went from a buyer to a manager to a director in the GM system. Mm. I moved over to America West Airlines, which through acquisition is now American Airlines. I had all the indirect spend there. Um, I moved to a company called IAC Interactive Corp, where I was the head of procurement there. So we owned Expedia, uh, Hotels.com, Ticketmaster, Home Shopping Network, Match, industry-leading companies. My job there was to get all the heads of purchasing to negotiate internally so that we could then go negotiate with our suppliers with one voice, you know, kind of get that aggregation of spend. And my last job before joining Table Force was with MGM Resorts International. So it's 10 strip properties, you know, 50,000 hotel rooms, global company. I tell that story to people because the negotiations is the, the thread that weaves through them all, whether it's manufacturing, yeah. hospitality, direct, indirect. If you're a great negotiator, you can have success no matter what company, what culture, what country you operate in. And that's what I, my passion for it hasn't come across already. Shame on me. I want people, the light bulb to go off that if they can just be a better negotiator. They can have better results and have better relationships. And as you listed that out, I'm also thinking about the internal alignment. That's a negotiation before we go do externally. And, and I'm sure we'll get to that. I want to tell yeah. I really want to discuss because that's something that people often find more difficult than the external is getting that internal alignment. Well, we'll get there. Listen, yeah. as you shifted from this abusive, and I, I loved how you laid it out. I was, where's he going here? Is he, is he going to just, you know, tell our listeners, hey, the way you do this is play a lot of video games and, and ignore <laughs> and, and then and beat them over the head. So right. as you think about the shifts you've made in terms of key turning points in your own mindset, thinking, the behaviors uh, that you find critical to being a successful negotiator, what, 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 what are those skills? What do you think is like the key things that negotiators to be successful need to be focused on and developing? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think um, we've got three foundational principles that, and I think they're key to being a great negotiator. Um, you got to be willing to try to negotiate, to, to put the effort in, um, not just say, do better, you've got competition up from the buy side. And as a seller, not just say, well, we've got the best product in town, here's our offer, take it or leave it. To, to be able to say, you know what, I'm willing to do better if you can do better. To say, listen, we're not in agreement right now, but I want to get to yes. How do we do that? 
So, mm-hmm. so that you know, sometimes you got to come in early. Sometimes, uh, especially in this global world we live in, you got to take a, a meeting. My calendar is set up where I can take meetings on my Sunday night so that my counterparts in Australia can have it easy to meet with me. Now, I take other liberties and, and other time off, but to be flexible with the other side. So, so be willing to put the effort in to try. Mm-hmm. Um, second, to actually have a, a good negotiation plan. So many people think that negotiations is about um, winging it and being entrepreneurial. They see it on TV, they see it in the movies, and they're like, oh, that was really sharp. There's a lot of planning that goes in, and it it can be boring, and it can be frustrating. But it's that old saying, those who plan better do better. And to know how to have a negotiation plan, and it does not have to be complicated. We've got one planning tool that can be done on the back of a business card. And then we've got a one-pager electronically. Now, we have one client who's a Six Sigma global manufacturing operations galore, approval processes. They took our one pager and they made it a six pager. Now, <laughs> that's a lot of planning and that's a lot of frustration on a lot of people's part, but that's their culture. Every moment that you put into planning is going to produce a return on investment in that negotiation. Absolutely. So, so to plan. And then the third thing we teach is we, we call it raise the bar. Have high expectations of yourself. Expect that you're going to get a better deal than anybody else on the planet. Mm. And maybe you won't. But if you try to get that better deal than anybody else on the planet, you just might fall short and still wind up with a great deal. So to challenge the other side to say, hey, this is a good deal, but I'm looking for a great deal. How can we do better? So those, those three things are kind of fundamental to everything that I do as a negotiator. Yeah, those really resonate, don't they, Nolan, Absolutely. Uh, with some of, some of the mindset things we think about. Can we dig into just two? Yeah. I know we've got a, a great lot of questions to go through with you, Mike. But if you said try. You know, we kind of joked uh, before we started to record this episode about just the technology and kind of persevering. Can you talk the difference between, you know, the good old you know, give it the good old college try or whatever versus like really deep perseverance on behalf of a negotiator and what that means to you. Sure. So I see this a lot with sellers for the past couple of years trying to get price increases. And um, the company will say, the CEO will say 12%, go get 12% from all of our customers. Now, what that really means is 12% average, or that's a raise the bar, 12, and the CEO is hoping to get 10, something like that. But a salesperson will plan a little bit. Really, their plan is I'm going to I'm going to ask for 12 and hope they'll they'll grant it to me. That's hope is not a strategy, but it's it is for a lot of salespeople. <laughs> so they'll meet with their buyer, and they'll say, Hey, listen, I've got really bad news, and I'm pulling for you, but my boss says that I need to get a 12 percent increase. The buyers are trained to say things like, No, get out of here, get out of your mind. Don't you understand that prices have now started going down, or now is a really bad time for us? We don't have the budget, or you're surprising me with this. Um, how dare you? But no, you can't have your 12. And a weak seller who doesn't have a plan, who doesn't know how to negotiate, who doesn't know how to try, will go back to their boss and say, it threw me out. They said, no, we can't have 12. In fact, we can't have anything. Sorry, I tried. <laughs> to which I say, no, you didn't. Yeah. There's a saying in negotiations, never take a no from someone out of power to say yes. So, so if the customer says, no, you can't have 12, a seller, strong seller, will say, who can approve 12? Can I talk to your boss? Can I talk to your boss's yeah. boss? Can I talk to the end user community? Can I talk to finance? I got to have a discussion with somebody who's empowered to give us a price increase, to be willing to push back on that customer. And I don't hear something I'm not saying. I'm not saying be rude or disrespectful. I'm not saying go around them. Right. A lot of sellers try to do that. I kind of coach once you go around your buyer, you've broken trust, but engage your buyer in the process 
of finding who can say yes to some level of price increase. Mm. You got to just keep trying. As part of that, I certainly hear the finding the right authority. As part of that, also kind of testing the legitimacy or the the under what circumstances could you go twelve or better? And then some of it under the other, the other guys would be the creative aspect of are there other ways we could piece together something that creates you know twelve percent uh, value for us or on average over time if we start thinking about volume or length of contract or those sorts of things. There you go. It, it, you know, you can say, listen, I need to get 12 on this spec, but if we can change the spec, um, maybe I can do 11. Um, maybe I can do 10. Uh, if you give me more volume, I can spread my, my fixed costs over a larger volume. Maybe I can reduce that 12. What's on your sheet of paper? I can do better if you can do better. Yeah. Can we make one plus one equal more than two? I love these three principles. The other one I want to dig into, I love is I assume the ability to persevere and really try hard is also rooted in what you said. Second was like having a good negotiation plan. I appreciate Mike. How you said it doesn't have to be complicated, right? Sometimes keeping it simple, stupid is a good, is a good approach. Um, can you say a little bit more about when you prepare personally for a negotiation, something that's really important? What are some of the steps that like you take to ensure that you are well prepared so that you can show up and, and really, really try uh, well? We teach a methodology called the bracket where you have to have an opening position and, and raise the bar. It's the most favorable to you. You're probably not going to get it. In fact, you should expect to hear no that let's, whether it's price or payment terms um, or delivery schedule, just about every term or condition can have an opening position that's the most favorable to you. The other side will, will likely say no to, and no is okay. Mm. Then you have to have a, a target position where it's your happy place. It's a good deal. And anywhere between the opening position most favorable to you and, and the target, you should negotiate freely. You're happy with that. And, and whether we show the other side we're happy or not, it's a tactic sometimes, but you should internally be happy. Once you go below your target, you have to have a bottom line, your, your walk away point. And, and that's when I tell people, start to slow down your pace. All of a sudden, it's not as good of a deal as you would have hoped for. I'm not saying it's a bad deal, and I'm not saying that you won't take it, but really slow it down. I've got to talk to somebody else, or I've got to check with myself. I'm not so sure. I'm not so comfortable with this. You can still come back and say yes, or you can say yes if. But, but have those three positions for every term or condition that you are um, about to negotiate. Um, you should understand the values of those things. And, and sometimes you can quantify them financially. It could be on uh, raw material. Um, it could be on uh, cost of travel. Uh, it could be lots of things. You can actually have a physical uh, financial cost. Or it could be high or medium or low value. Value of a reference. So if you ask me to introduce you to somebody over at Caesars, one of our biggest competitors at MGM, I would say, well, I think I met this lady, Sally, at a conference and she works in like maintenance or, yeah, I'm not really sure where she is. Mm. That would be a low value reference introduction. But if you said, um, hey, can you introduce me to somebody over at Boyd? I'd say, well, yeah, I got this guy that I played fantasy football with for the last 12 years. His name's Frank Sheridan. When I was at MGM, Frank and I shared an office. And by the way, Frank's their chief procurement officer. Now, that's a high value reference or introduction over there. So, so having understanding the values of, of what you're negotiating, I think are important. Right. And then um, be able to write down the, the things that are low value to you. We refer to them as yields. 
and, and the things that are high value to you. Now, low value to you could be high value to the other side. It's, it, it's right. not always a one-to-one relationship. But I, I worked with this some lady named Debbie Morton. Debbie's one of the best negotiators I've ever worked with. And Debbie could, could win every term or condition in a 68-page agreement. I've seen her do it. But if I could change something about Debbie, and I would only do it if this is the one thing I could change, is she was ultra competent at negotiating and ultra competitive. So her deals might take three months to negotiate instead of three weeks or three days because she really had to win. To be able to give the low stuff to your side that might have value to the other side to make them happy with the deal, I think is a good, healthy thing. Mm. So long as you're getting the most important, most critical things for your side. And then we, we say, get in the habit and create the loop. It's a simple, repeatable process. You say, yes, if, mm. yes, I can do that, that low value thing. Yes, I can contribute that if I get something higher value in return. Yeah. And then if they ask you for something you can't give, something on your shield list, something your boss has said, you're going to get fired if you do that again. You have to say no. But if you just say no, you've, you've deadlocked the deal. You've dared them, take it or leave it. Mm. So what we say is, say no, take it off the table, and then say, but I can do something else for you if I get something in return. And so it's yes, if, and no, but if are yeah. just a simple, repeatable process that we found can, can grow the pie, make deals bigger, can make the other side happy with the deal and make sure that you're happier with the deal. Yeah. The idea of repeating, making it a habit. You said something I want to drill in and, and Nolan's eventually going to say, Hey, quit asking so many questions. Let me jump in here. All right. He's got, anyways, but I have to ask, cause you said a no's okay. And I think that a lot of folks, Ooh, that's they're like, I'm not comfortable with a no. How do you get comfortable with maybe hearing that? No. And the positive aspect, the view that you take in when, a, when you hear a no, maybe it's not permanent. There's something to learn there. How do you coach the folks who are very uncomfortable with like rejection and that? No. So first of all, they're not alone. It, it's silence. People hate silence. We all know this in negotiating and hearing no, it's a rejection. It's a negative word and people don't like to be rejected. So this is where we have to override that voice in our head and understand that no is absolutely okay. And I've actually learned that no is a good thing, a positive thing. Let me give you a quick power of no story. Um, at IAC, we were sourcing $100 million in print. And R.R. Donnelly, one of the world's largest printers at the time, was really the only company that could fit our, our spec. We brought them down to Home Shopping Network. And we had 10 business leads and they had 10 print experts, big big table. And Bob Nelson is their president at the time. And um, Bob was given a passionate, persuasive speech on why we should select R.R. Donnelly. Now, what Bob didn't know was we'd already selected them because they were the only company that could actually fulfill our needs. So Bob says, and by the way, not only are we great today, we're going to be better in the future because we've just rolled out a Six Sigma initiative. Now, what Bob didn't know about my sheet of paper at the time, this is before we had LinkedIn and stuff like that, is um, I'm a Six Sigma expert, trained, certified, and I know that when you roll out a Six Sigma initiative, generally speaking, there's some cost savings attached to that. So this is how fast the negotiation went. Bob said Six Sigma, and I, I interrupted him. I said, Bob, when I hear you say Six Sigma, I'm assuming there's a cost savings. And he said, yes, there is. And I said, um, is it about 6%? I just threw out a benchmark number. And he said, as a matter of fact, our target is to hit 6% savings every year. And I said, I want half of that back in a rebate every year. And Bob said, done. Yes. Now, my boss was ecstatic. Remember, 6% on $100 million is $6 million a year. We just got back $3 million in 15 seconds. 
my boss lit up because we, we got that concession. But I tell people, how did I really feel when he said yes? I mean, he, he said yes to make me feel good. But the negotiator in me says, mm. oh, maybe I could have got a little more. You know, was six really eight right. and was 50-50 really 60-40? That's 4.8 million for our side. That, that pays a lot of bonuses and salaries and a lot of extra stuff. Yeah. So he was in such a rush to make me feel good. He said, yes. And I'm not saying you have to manufacture all this stuff. But if you just say, Mike, do you realize you asked me for $3 million? And I would have said, uh-huh. And he would have said, I got to check with some people. That's a big ask. He could have still come back and said yes to the three. Yep. If he would have delayed the yes, I would have felt better. And if he would have come back and said, no, three million, you're out of your mind. I can offer you 500,000. And I would have said, 500,000, you're out of your mind. How about a million? And I would tell the story about how I worked really hard to get $750,000. And instead I tell the story about how we got $3 million in 15 seconds. Mm. And I'm unsatisfied with that. So, you know, I always think, no is where we start this. If I don't get a no, maybe I haven't asked for enough in that negotiation. Interesting. Thank you. Does that resonate? Yeah. Could you explain for our listeners what B2B negotiation entails and how it differs from other types of negotiation? I know this is something that you have all over your LinkedIn page. And so yeah, I was hoping you could help elaborate on it. So I was enlightened to this um, recently, with, with about a year and a half ago. A, um, a crisis negotiator reached out to me on LinkedIn and I have a standard thing. When I have no connection with somebody, I always say, how may I be of service? I, I want to see if they're going to put a little effort into having a relationship or if it's one of those LinkedIn bots that we see more and more of. So I said, how can I be of service? And, he, and they said, Mike, I'm retired and I've been negotiating for 20 years, crisis negotiations, and I'm finding out business negotiations are so different from what I've done. I'd like to learn from you. And I, and I remember thinking, they're, they're different? What? I thought it's all about influencing people and... and so I started to really pay attention. So this is what I've come up with from a crisis negotiations. It's the highest form of negotiating. You're negotiating over a person's life, right? If you can't feel a passion for that. You know, if I lose a business deal, it's a million dollars, it's a hundred million dollars. It is what it is. But if you don't bring home that life, that's just a horrible feeling I could never live with. So this is where I've, I've kind of looked at some very specific differences. Number one, the person you're negotiating with is generally speaking in an irrational state whether they've taken a hostage and then gotten caught or whether they are on a bridge, they're not in a critical thinking state of mind. So you have to approach a person very differently when they're in that situation. Number two, they likely have not been trained in negotiating and, and they probably have very little experience negotiating. So you're gonna use different techniques and tactics in that situation versus someone who has been trained. For example, um, Chris Voss has some very famous techniques that are very powerful, uh, mirroring, when you repeat the last words that someone says, or um, he talks about slipping into his late night radio DJ voice. Now, as a business negotiator who's been trained, who's read the books, when the other side does that, I almost kind of giggle. Like, really, you're going you're gonna to slip into your late night radio DJ voice and, and I'm going to make a concession? Or I don't think so. so. So the fact they haven't been trained has some advantage to the negotiator themselves. Third thing, they're operating from a can't lose position. You know, they bring home an arm. That's a bad day for everybody. And lastly, there is no relationship. They have to show up on site and very quickly psychoanalyze that person, develop a very quick relationship, 
but it's a one and done. Hmm. They can take some liberties that a business to business negotiator it would add a lot of risk because in a business to business sense, you're going to see that other side a lot, maybe daily, weekly, monthly at the quarterly review at the renewal process. So a business to business negotiator has to put a higher level of respect toward building the relationship for the long term, And a crisis negotiator has to put more focus developing the relationship for the very short term. Those things make sense to you guys, resonate with you guys? So contextual differences between the two, the end state goal between the two is different. So the nature of timing deal gets done in the next 12 hours, pretty critical for life and death versus this could last the next 12 weeks. And, you know, as long as we get it done before the next fiscal year quarter, a little different there. Yeah. Yeah. And then the idea too, and I think that, you know, Gary Nestor gets to this a lot in his book, Stalling for Time, which is we are sometimes uh, creating the conditions until a strike force, which would be an alternative move, is ready to go into play. And yet we know from crisis negotiators too that there's a lot of valuable skills, a lot of the active listening, a lot of the dealing with empathy. I would assume you've seen some emotions, uh, even in in B2B negotiations, that emotions occasionally show up. Maybe I'm crazy. So there's still those skills that are very transferable and useful. And I think it's helpful to kind of say, hey, there's the context different, some of the gold desired end states different. Um, and those things are helpful to understand. Hey, let me let me piggyback off on something you just said, you know, the um, the emotions that can come out. And in a negotiation, sometimes there's a role of the bad cop. And what I tell people is you can see right through somebody who's not authentically upset. You know, if I pound the table and that's not really, you know, in my character, I, I think I'll be a, I'll do a bad job mm. of acting that way. But what I've discovered over the years through feedback is um, when I relax I have the male version of resting bee face. <laughs> so I've learned that if my role in the negotiation is to be the bad cop, to just like read the proposal and and I found sometimes people make concessions when I do that. But see, I don't like to be scary. I don't like to be mean. I like to build a relationship. So behind this camera right here is a sign that says smile. Because so I don't get in a relaxed state or, or I, my, my face can scowl. Yeah. Um, right. But I, so I use that as necessary in a negotiation, but I don't really want for that to be the natural state. I want for people to yeah. be happy and think that negotiations are a positive, good thing. Yeah. And it sounds like if I heard you right, when you are consistent with who you are in your character, you show up and negotiate more powerfully. Hey everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and end today's podcast for part A of the show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast if you haven't already. And also join us next week for part B of this awesome interview. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.